This morning our passage is in, found in Acts 14. It's found in your bulletin, verses 8 through 23. I'm reading from the ESV. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from those vain things in a living God to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that though through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Blessed be God's holy word. Good morning. You want to hear me all right? All right. I'm, uh, for those of you who are visiting us, with us this morning, my name is Amari Hill. I'm is one of the assistant pastors here at Christ Central Church. Uh, if I could humbly ask one, somebody from the hospitality team or one of our deacons just to uh, let the uh, children's church folks and the uh, four-year-olds know uh, when I'm just about done with the sermon, just so you can, they, they're free to come back in for communion. That would be great. So we, um, we're, this is the end of November. Just come through Thanksgiving. We're about to go into December. And December um, and a lot of uh, traditions in the church for Christians is also the beginning of a new year. It's the beginning of the, the Christian year, and it begins with a season called Advent. And Christmas is seated right in the middle um, of that season. And Advent is a time for us in which we... Um, become aware of, and even stoke the flames of our longing, our longing and our hope to reconnect with something that is larger than us, a mystery that uh, is transcendent, that we hope will fill us in a way that transforms who we are and transforms the world around us. 
One of the things that I loved about growing up in New York City is that the, the city uh, around this time of year is transformed almost magically, where people become a little bit kinder to each other and begin to look to the lights in the midst of the darkness of the winter. And so that is a, a symbol of what Advent is really all about, that we have a, a season in which we get to turn to God, the mysterious and holy one, and ask him to fill us and to change us in a way um, that makes us just a little bit more like him and that transforms our world around us. Just as Mary willingly received the life of God within herself and brought forth literally salvation for the world, so we also long in a derivative way to be filled with the goodness of God that we can make a difference in our time. And so we are going to explore that uh, in this next month in our sermon series. We'll be going through Advent through that series and exploring that longing and that hope. Um, so I um, hope you will um, share some of that with your friends and uh, as you tell other people about uh, what we'll explore together in December, let them know about Advent season. Now, if we, when we talk about making a, a difference in the world, changing it, we're admitting that something's wrong with it, right? And some Christians will, will look at other people who are secularists, that is people who believe that they're is no possibility of something outside of us, a God, a being, or something outside of us in, interrupting and interacting in our world. Some Christians will look at, at, at those folks as secularists and say, well, well, why? Why would you have any justification for uh, changing the world? For you, you have no place um, in, in which to, to base your, your moral um, grounding. Right? To try to change anything. If something's wrong, how do you know that it's wrong? If, you, if you, all you can do is look to yourself or look to a community, right? So if there are no more absolutes, how do, you, how do you justify seeking transformation in our times? But the truth is, love doesn't really need any justification, right? I mean, it's just something that you do. We just love. And we're, we're supposed to do that. You don't need a mountaintop experience to love. You don't need a college degree to learn how to love. But love in the real world, does come with a cost. Now, I was recently listening to a, a TED Talk, and there's a, there's a brother on there, African-American guy, who's, uh, his name is Casey Gerald, and uh, he's, a, he's a Harvard alum. And he talked about uh, this project that he's trying to do, but he had this, uh, that's, you know, that's something that works toward the, the common good of those around him. And uh, he had a very humbling experience. He, he said that uh, one day he looked around, and he went to this gala with uh, other Harvard alum, and they, they were looking at each other and just, congratulating one another, and rightfully so, on some of the achievements that they've made in society and how far they've come. And they were, they were glad to network with each other and say, how can we bring our resources together to affect change in the world? But then he went just a, a few blocks away, he said, he just, not, not too far from where he was, he went a little bit uptown, he was in New York City, and he went up to Harlem. And he went up there and he saw people without college degrees, people without his pedigree, people without his resources making a difference in ways that he could only dream of. And it humbled him. And he said to himself, my God, what, what have I been doing? What have I been doing with myself? Like, I've spent all these years, you know, trying to, you know, trying to get these networks and to make it. I made it to the top, you know. I went through an Ivy League school. And look what others are doing. They're making real change in a neighborhood that is close to my heart. And I haven't been able to do anything with what I've done. Sometimes... We have to wrestle with the question of what we do when we fall short through our well-intentioned efforts. Like, what do we do with that? When we go out to make a difference and, and we're, we're, we're trying to, to change the world, but we come up short, 
What do we do when the, the movements and, and individuals and companies that um, we've entrusted ourselves to have misused or abused us? What do we do when we have failed ourselves? When we encounter persecution and self-doubt and abandonment, we ask ourselves, why should I keep loving? Why should I keep pouring out myself? Why should I keep going on? Perhaps some of you ask that question after spending some time with loved ones and friends this Thanksgiving. Why should I keep doing this, showing up over and over and over again? It's too hard. And this is where Christianity in particular gets tough because the scriptures instruct us that we are not to grow weary in well-doing, right? So, so we're like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm trying to be faithful, but that's easier said than done. And it's not just uh, uh, what, what Paul says, he's the one who said it, it's not just some inspiring word to kind of help us keep going, but it's an appeal, a holy appeal made to those of us who are seeking to follow Jesus um, to, to do uh, what we say that we're supposed to be a people who are filled with the love of God and who are sharing that love with the world. So how do, we remain, how do we remain committed to this way of love, all the while becoming not more cynical and bitter, but becoming generous and joyful? How do we do that? How do we become beautiful human beings like Jesus was, not in spite of, but through our struggles? through our troubles, through our failures. The text that we've heard read this morning is a dramatic incident of how some early church leaders dealt with the obstacles that we're talking about. So if you see here in the text that the two main characters are Barnabas and Paul. And Barnabas and Paul were on this campaign of love. And they had received promises from their God, promises that had come down through the years, first starting with Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob, all the way down to them through the years. And these promises from God were now to be shared with all nations. And so this Christian movement of divine generosity was on the move. It was happening. And Paul and Barnabas were a part of this thing. And so are we, if we are part of the people of God. How do we remain committed to becoming generous people who are also joyful seeking the renewal of our world? We can do this by, by turning to a love that is from above. And we're, we're given two incentives for this with this text that it shows us that the, the love from above, from the only Savior of the world, delivers us from our fears, and he also gathers us into his love. The love from above delivers us from our fears, and it gathers us into his love. Part of God's promise for all people not just those who are part of one particular people group, is resurrection. That is, we uh, uh, look forward to a renewed material world without the, the slightest hint of death or sin or injustice. And it also includes incorruptible bodies. Right? Our bodies will no longer decay, but they will be something more than what they are now, but yet quite the same in some ways. And so while Paul's preaching about the gospel, he and Barnabas see this opportunity to bless this poor man's body, right? Not just to, as I was reminded this morning from a brother, not just to do gospel proclamation, but, but gospel deeds. And so this is what they do. And the gospel from the very beginning has always um, been preached in word and deed out of love. It's always been both. And while we cannot perform miracles today, 
we can consider how to make sacrifices for the physical well-being of others, especially the poor and the marginalized, as the scriptures call us to do. But the apostles' love in this incident caused something odd. And we see it here in the text. They love on this man, and then the people decide to call them gods. And then they have sort of what, uh, what we could call a, a bloody liturgy, right? They start bringing uh, sacrifices, and they lay out garlands. And, uh, and um, generally, in, in Scripture, it's not a good idea to make people into gods, right? That's usually a bad call if you start making people into something that they're not. But the act of loving someone can unearth some dark things. The act of loving someone can unearth some dark things. Like commitment to date or love someone as best as you can can sometimes bring up some stuff, some problems that are not really about you, but are more about that person's relationship to their father, right? There are powerful narratives that are at work in our lives, in our neighborhoods, and in our institutions before we even show up. That is, stories and habits that shape the way that we see the world and our place in it. And our act of loving can unearth some deep fears. So the people of Lystra uh, appeared relatively well under Roman rule. They were doing all right, but there was something going on under the surface. Look again at verse 9. He says this, Luke reports, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates they wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out. Many years before Paul and Barnabas even showed up, there was a disastrous flood in this region. We learn this from the history books. Now, there's some legend tied to this disastrous flood. It was written by an ancient poet, Ovid, and he explains, he explains what happened. He, he says in this legend, he says that there were, at one point, there were two strangers who visited this region. And they came there expecting to be taken care of. They, they expected some, some good old hospitality, right? But they received nothing from anyone except from this poor, humble couple that, that, that shared an, a little bit, of, the little bit of what they had and gave to them and took care of them. And then it turns out, that these strangers were gods, and they were disguised as human beings. And, and, and the reward that was given to this, this poor elderly couple was that they would be rescued now from this flood of judgment that was about to come, and that they would also be um, granted their wish to become priests in the new temple that would be built later on to these gods, even though um, they, would, they would not die, right? They get to live for a long time and be priests. Who are these gods? You probably already guessed it from the text. Zeus and Hermes, right? The narrative was at work. The legend was at work in the minds and the hearts of the people when Paul and Barnabas showed up. These Lystrans and their, their neighbors were always on edge when it came to the universe. 
they always had, they had this belief that, that, that the universe was out to get us, was waiting to judge us for how we behave, right? The stars hadn't always aligned in their favor. And so the divine powers were always testing them and waiting to punish them for their failure. And so like wounded dogs, they cowered that the next time they saw that newspaper coming, right? And, and what did that newspaper read to them? It said that a lame man is walking, and therefore, Zeus and Hermes have returned. So this is what we need to do. Let's get, get your things together. Let's bless them. Let's serve them. Let's appease them. And maybe we'll get to live. Maybe we'll be saved from a flood. Maybe we'll be saved from judgment. And you wonder, how could anyone in this, in a, this relative state of prosperity that these people had, how could anyone live under such a state of anxiety? How could they prosper? What did their lives look like? What could have happened to their hearts? Because the truth is that myths are cute until they're not, right? Like, they've got real-life consequences. But thank goodness us modern charlatans aren't into mythology, right? We don't believe in that kind of stuff. We're not enslaved by superstition and idols. We don't, we don't do that, right? We don't actually believe that we're supposed to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, even though we don't have any boots. We don't actually believe that we'll be alone unless we can prove to someone that we're sexually compatible. We don't believe that. We don't actually believe that unethical behavior may be the best way to make sure that our lives mean something in this growing metropolis. When you believe that the universe is out to get you, you do anything it takes to survive, anything, anything to play the game so that you can make it through to the next level. But when you feel safe, there's no need to live in fear. You're more prone to live freely and joyfully. So then, my brothers and sisters, it appears that many of our neighbors and friends do not feel safe. And maybe that's you too. We give our lives over to some ideology or some way of life that will never deliver us. Too many have been abused by life and are prone to look, look through every single act of charity. You know, every single act of love and somebody's coming to, to bless you, we look through that as some kind of power play. Cynical. I know where you're coming from. I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to control me. Too many have consigned themselves to a world without a personal God. It must learn how to stay two steps ahead of the superstructures of our culture or the impersonal forces of our universe. Maybe that's you. Maybe you can't put your guard down. Maybe you said to yourself, never again. Maybe you have to, you have to stay vigilant. Secure the little that you have, lest death and its cousins come to claim it. Right? The, the, the fear of death and shame and the greater forces of darkness around us in our world will make you sacrifice things that should be kept alive, like hope and resilience and truth and dignity and love. But what the loving acts of Paul and Barnabas demonstrate is what they have been preaching all along, that one greater than death has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and he is calling all nations and all of us back to life. 
Death is not running things, but life has the ultimate authority, and his name is Jesus. This is what Paul and Barnabas are all about. This is what they're preaching. So we, along with our neighbors, want to believe that there's something beyond the veil, the thin veil of death and shame. We want to believe that there's something beyond hashtag me too. We want to believe that there's something beyond hands up. We want to believe that there's something beyond the cries of sexual abuse that seem to be rising up in every single sphere of human culture, including the church. We want to believe that there's something beyond the holiday meals that reveal family shame over and over and over and over again. We want to believe that there's something beyond all these things. How, how, how are we not supposed to believe that this world is not some kind of tyrant that is not made for those who are weak and humble or noble? That deep down, we want to believe that this is not all that there is. That there is a life, a love that is above us, that is ready to show up and show us just how much we're worth. That his words will be truer and stronger than the ways that we have sinned and been sinned against. We want that life. We long for that life. And what about our doubts? See, I think some of the critics of Christianity today would say that the apostles, looking here at a text like this, they would say, you know, the apostles were people of their time, right? They were prone to believe in something like a God who would come in the flesh, but not us, right? These are modern times. We believe in things like that. But is that really true? Because if you look at what happens here in the text, I, I beg to differ with that. Well, verse 14, it says, when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. See, for, for Paul and Barnabas, who were Jews, <laughs> to, they, they came from a culture in, when, in which they are prone not to believe in a, in, in a man who claimed to be God. You see what happens? When the people come to them and they think that they're God, they rip their clothes because it's blasphemy to believe such a thing. So, you know, so they're, they're willing to preach something, to live out of something that was offensive to their own people, something that would, would risk, that would cause them to risk their own lives. But why would they do that? Why would they risk their own lives? Maybe because it's true that Jesus is real, that he really is God come in the flesh. And this is why Paul and Barnabas were able to go back to Lystra and to give away the love of Christ, even though he had just been left for dead. And if we're going to become generous and joyful people for a world that's deeply broken, it's not only important to know that, that Jesus is all-powerful, that this love from above is, is all-powerful, and that he can deliver us from the fear of death. For that could simply just call us to exchange one tyrant for another. But we must see that this love has always been for us. Look with me again at verse 15. They say, men, why are you doing these things? 
We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven in fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. See, the Lyconians thought that the gods were something like what uh, we tend to teach our kids about Santa Claus, right? That they're out there making a list, and they're waiting for you to, to do your best, and they'll reward you for it, right? And, some, and somehow, maybe, <laughs> like uh, our kids may are tempted to believe that, that Santa will spare you of the shame, right? If you know you didn't do so well that year, hopefully there's still going to be a gift under the tree, right? And we think that, and the, and the Lyconians were thinking the same way about the gods, that maybe, you know, if, if they're merciful, they, they might spare us of the shame, but the whole time we're just living in anxiety, wondering what's going to happen. Now, here's a good thing that probably happened to most of you, uh, and what I'm about to say, if, this, if your parents didn't tell you about this, I'm sorry, but, you know, your parents probably burst your bubble about Santa Claus at some point, right? And they told you, you know, Santa is not real, okay? That's good. Because it's good to know that the gifts that you receive didn't come from some stranger, but it came from people who are committed to you, right? Your parents, your mother, your father, your grandmother, your aunts, your uncles, cousins, people who love you are going to be there for you throughout, throughout life for all of life, right? And, and not just when you do good, but when you're not doing so good. So it's good that we burst those kinds, those kinds of myths, and so what Paul is saying to the Lyconians is he's saying, you haven't been receiving rain and food from these strange and tyrannical idols, but you have been, you have been filled by a living and loving God who is committed to you. That's the truth. And yes, even in a broken world where, where evil and injustice still exists, God has been at work. He has been at work restoring and sustaining our lives. He sustains the order of our world so that we're able to observe that, that, that people really will advocate for just policies after their hearts have been moved by nonviolent protest. He sustains the order of our world so that mathematics actually makes sense. And with math, we can engineer skyscrapers and build the smartphones that we have in our pockets. Right? He sustains the order of our world so that we can observe the material world, make scientific advancements, improve our parks, and build new civilizations. God has been at work all along, satisfying our hearts with food and gladness. Now, could you imagine such cosmic fullness and material well-being and innovation without the tears and the fears that we suffer? That's the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus proclaimed. That's what Jesus has secured for us. And that is what he is bringing. And what the Lyconians have experienced in the presence of Paul and Barnabas is a foretaste of that kingdom. And that, friends, is what we are called to bear witness to in our time, the kingdom which is coming. But sin and death have cast their darkness. That's true. We have no way around that. I, was, uh, I watched a... Um, Oh, goodness. It was a, a movie the other day called, uh, some of you heard of this, The Shack. And um, there's you know, a, a man, 
loses his daughter, his only daughter, to a horrible death um, out in a, a shack in the woods. And he, he re, in, in grief, he returns to the shack because he, he's trying to heal, but he can't quite get there. And he's angry at God. Uh, and then sort of like in, a, in an apocalyptic kind of way, almost, sort of, sort of like the, the prophets or like the apostle John, he gets caught up in a vision and he encounters God. Right? Um, God takes a form of three different people and he has dialogue and it begins, he begins to get challenged on this and to get some healing. And, he, and in, this, in this encounter, he comes across wisdom. And wisdom comes to him and, he, and wisdom says, ask him the question, uh, were you expecting this life to be pain-free? And he said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? And, and, and it struck me when I heard that because I thought about my own heart and, and how, you know, su- I mean, and suffering should be hard for us, right? But, but to, you know, how long will it take us to realize that the darkness is part of our world for the here and now, right? It's, it's something that we have to deal with, something that we have to struggle with. But here's the good news. The light is with us, and the light has been with us the entire time. And his goal is not to leave us or abandon us to the darkness, but to rescue us out of it. So do you see, do you get the idea that somebody wants us here in this world? that this place was supposed to be our home. We were made for this planet. We were made for this world. But we cried out in the dark for too long. We believe that we don't belong here. We believe that we cannot be vulnerable, that we have to maintain the chaos in our own lives, that we have to sacrifice our dignity for idols that cannot deliver us from shame and death. We believe that darkness is the ultimate reality, but the light is here. And he has come for you and me. So then we are free to stop wasting our sacrifices and our achievements on trying to outrun death's darkness. But instead of, because instead of condemning you and I for our empty ways of salvation, Christ took the place of the oxen, as it were, and he was sacrificed for our guilt. So instead of excluding us for our lack of hospitality, not to Zeus and Hermes, but to the true and the living God, He sweeps us into himself, not with the flood that destroys, but with the flood of his love and the flood of eternal life. This world, this crazy world, may be out to get you sometimes, but God is not. For I heard Jesus say, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Take courage, for I have overcome the world through many dangers, the hymn writer says, toils and snares. I have already come, but his grace has brought me safe this far, and his grace will bring me home. How does that love from above change us? What does his grace do to us? we'll actually begin to imagine ways in which we can in- invite our neighbors into God's family because we're, we'll be no longer convinced that uh, 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 our neighbors and our friends who are on the outside sort of, of, of God's community of blessing will somehow just find another good option out there. 
Like, there's some, there'll eventually be something else that comes along that can deliver them from shame and death. There's nothing else. There's nothing else that can do it. But we'll also be free to endure suffering and tribulations in our relationships and our work and actually become generous and even joyful people to the point where we're giving away ourselves at some level of risk to ourselves. Now, I, again, I have to be careful when we, preachers, pastors, we all have to be careful when we talk about these things because we don't want to make the picture look really rosy, right? I just said earlier that darkness and sin and death are a part of our reality in the here and now. And things certainly weren't rosy for Barnabas and Paul. I mean, look, for goodness sake, they were, Paul was left for dead. He was beaten. The sin and idolatry can dehumanize people to the point where slavery feels much safer than freedom. But we, you may never be left for dead by your neighbors because of Christ. But you will know something of the pain that comes from watching someone that you have loved over and over and over again simply reject Jesus and the freedom that he offers. That is a cross that you and I must bear. And it brings pain that we have to own. But God will use it to make you more like Jesus. And more importantly, he'll bear it with you. You and I, who call ourselves Christians, who are part of God's people, have the best justification for remaining committed to and with the world and with God in sacrificial love. What's that justification? Our ultimate reality beyond the veil is love. That he is our ultimate justification. He delivers us from our worst fears, and he will gather us and the entire creation into himself. Love will win. In fact, love has already won. But that's jumping a little bit ahead to Easter. But right now, in the here and now, let us remember that we need a love from above to deliver us from our fears and to gather us, sustain us in his love. For now, let us keep learning how to, how to use our sacrifices and our achievements to bear the burden of love for a deeply broken world by the grace of a living God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are dependent upon you. We need your love to take us, to fill us, to sustain us. For we have tried over and over and over again to do as you desire, to do as your love compels us to do. And we have encountered struggle after struggle, we come against obstacles that we cannot uh, uh, get over. Some of those worst obstacles are within our own hearts. Father, there have been so many times in which we have looked at our sins and we have become hopeless as we see our own destructiveness seeking to devour us. But God, we are, we are resolving to keep going forward because of the victory of Jesus. And because of your promise to be uh, committed to us, we need you, Lord. We need you to continue to be with us. We thank you for your commitment, for being near, for giving us 
the hope that the way that things are won't always be this way. That one day you will turn everything upside down, right side up. And we will get to share in that with our bodies and our souls fully integrated in joyful union with you. God, would you restore our hearts now? Help us who are doubting. Help us who are wounded. Help us who are struggling to trust and believe in you. Restore us, O Lord. Not because we are good, but because you are good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.